No preamble this morning. No cute stories about my kids or funny stories from my life. Here is point number one for you this morning. I want to fix some Bible stories. Okay? I think the Bible needs an edit. All right? I've decided there are some stories in the Bible uh, that I don't particularly like. They just don't sit well with me. Uh, maybe they're a little bit offensive, or particularly they don't have the right ending. Okay, there's a lot of characters in some of these stories that just don't come out right. For a variety of reasons, there are some stories in Scripture that are not done right, and so as an aspiring theologian, I've decided this morning to fix a few of them for you. Start with the story of Job. Doesn't work out right. You remember the story of Job, right? Okay, I want to fix the story of Job to where God comes to Job after all the stuff that's happened, after Job has lost his wife and kids, has gone through all this stuff, and has been told, curse God and die, but he doesn't do it. What I want to have happen is at the end of the story, God shows up and takes Job and says, Job, I want you to know I made this wager with the accuser that you would stay faithful to me, and since you did, I'm going to let you wake up tomorrow, and this has all been a dream. Okay, I want it to be like the Christmas carol, right? Where he wakes up, he gets his wife and his kids back, and everything is back to the way it was before all of the calamity happened. I think that's the way that story should be written. We're going to edit it and fix it. Okay, I'm going to fix the story of the prodigal son. Hey, you remember the prodigal son, right? Where the, the kid goes to his dad, says, Dad, I wish you were dead, so I'm going to take my half of the inheritance and run off. And so he runs off, spends it all on drug, sex, and rock and roll, or whatever he was doing, comes back to the father on his hands and knees. Dad runs out, meets him, gives him a big hug, throws a big party, because the son of mine who was lost has been found. And the older brother says, well, I don't think that's very nice. And the father says, well, you should be glad your brother's home. Okay, I'm going to fix that story. Hey, and I'm cool with all the grace stuff in it, right? Because I need grace as well. I like that part of the story. I like that the father runs out and embraces the younger son. I like the fact that the younger son gets a party. But what I want to have happen is that the next page says that the older brother then got his party because after all, he was the responsible one. He did what he was supposed to do. And as a responsible kid growing up, I think the older son should have gotten a party too. Hey, honestly, if we're thinking about it, there is a lot of stuff that Jesus says which needs some editing, okay? I'm going to fix some of that. All right, I also want to edit the stoning of Stephen, okay? Remember this story, Acts chapter 6, uh, or 7, somewhere in Acts, I don't know. Acts chapter 7, thank you. Okay, and I'm good with this story up until the end also, Okay, because if you remember, Stephen gives this great sermon, and at the end of it, the crowd is so angry because he's making these claims about Jesus, and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees just can't handle it. So they pick up rocks, and they stone Stephen. And as they are stoning Stephen, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Okay, which is a great Jesus-like thing to say. I am pretty sure that if I were being martyred, that would not have been the last thing that I would have said. But I'm okay with the story through that part because Stephen's this great man and that, that's all nice. But what I want to have the next line of the story read is I want it to say, and then descended 10,000 angels who littered the streets of Jerusalem with pieces of Sadducee and Pharisee. But it made a great ending. In fact, I think there are several stories in Scripture that should end with, and then a legion of angels came down and slaughtered all the bad guys. We're going to fix it. 
Hey, any of you have any problem with me fixing these stories, or are you all on the same page? We're all good? Making you uncomfortable just a little bit? Okay. We'll come back to that. Because in Daniel chapter 3, which is our text this morning, if you haven't already turned there, Daniel 3, we have another story that I think needs fixing, but it needs fixing for very different reasons. Okay, here's the story. King Nebuchadnezzar puts up a statue of gold, and it's obscene in how big it is. The text tells us it's something like 90 feet high, which just for comparison, that's about the same height as the tree that we put up in the Rockefeller Center every year in New York, right? This thing is massive. This would be the biggest idol those people had ever seen. And then Nebuchadnezzar summons all of the important people in Babylon to come out and see his big idol. And then at the sound of the music, whenever the band plays, everybody is supposed to bow down and worship this idol. So the band plays. Everyone does it, except for three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they don't do this because they're Jewish. And in the big Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not worship idols. They cannot do this, so they just flat don't do it. So, Nebuchadnezzar hears of this. He has the three men come before him, and he tells them, Okay, I'm going to give you another chance. If you don't worship this statue that I have put up, then what I will do is I will throw you into a blazing furnace. The three men look at the king of the world, basically shrug their shoulders and say, you do what you have to do, we're going to do what we have to do. So Nebuchadnezzar does. He ties up the three men, he throws them into a fire, a fire the text says is so hot that it even kills the men doing the throwing. And yet instead of hearing the satisfying sound of their blood-curdling screams, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and sees a fourth man walking around who he says looks like a son of the gods. So they don't burn up. The king pulls them out of the fire. He immediately sings praises to the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he decrees that if anyone in all of Babylon says anything negative about this Jewish god, they will be cut into pieces and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. The end. And considering that most of this story revolves around torture and execution, it is amazing to me that our first reaction in reading this story is to think, aha, this is a great children's story. Let's make a coloring page that goes with it. Okay, Make sure you've got plenty of orange and red crayons to give out to all the little kids. That's what we do. Okay? And I don't like the story. Okay, so why do I say that this story needs fixing? Okay, don't we like stories where the little guy stands up to the big bad guy and wins? I mean, this is the ultimate story of vindication. Not only do the good guys win in this story, but the evil bad king has to eat his own words and at the end of it fall down before these three Jewish men and say, you're right, your God is the real God. Now we know who's really king. It is a great David and Goliath kind of story. So why could I possibly have a problem with the story of the fiery furnace? All right, well, the reason I think this story needs fixing and the reason that I'm struggling with this story this morning 
is that what we do is we read stories like this, we tell them to our children, and then we tell our kids, this is how God works. We make this a children's Bible story, along with David and Goliath, and Daniel in the lion's den, and the flood, and the sacrifice of Isaac, and the walls of Jericho, which miraculously came crashing down, and Jonah and the fish, where God saves Jonah from drowning. And we tell our kids that the way God works is that when your life is on the line, when it looks like the bad guys are going to win, when everything is at its worst, the way God works is He is going to swoop in, pull you out of the fire, and magically make everything in your life all better. So if you're facing something challenging, just have faith because God will pull you out of it. God is going to pull you out of your fiery furnace. So what happens to our kids? They grow up having heard all of their lives that that's how God works. They go out into the real world. We face some fires. And does God always miraculously pull you out of the fire? That's not rhetorical. I'm asking that as a question. Does God always miraculously pull you out of the fire like he did for these three men in Daniel chapter 3? No. And so when God doesn't pull us out of every mess that life puts us in, then what do we do? We say, well, either I don't have enough faith in this God and there's something wrong with me, or maybe my parents and my teachers and my preacher didn't know what they were talking about, and maybe the kind of God that I read about in Scripture doesn't really exist. Maybe that God is just a fairy tale that we need to grow out of and leave behind as we become real adults. Does that bother anyone else, or is it just me? So, do I need to fix this story? To have it match more of reality? Do I need to edit it for us? You know, because I think I'd feel better if at least one of the guys dies, right? Maybe God can save a couple of them, but let one die. You know, in the Middle East right now, there are Christians who are standing up to ISIS and telling them, no, we won't forsake our God to bow down to yours. They are doing the exact same thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And instead of an angel swooping into the rescue and punishing the bad guys, those Christians, our brothers and sisters who are alive today, are being enslaved or raped or murdered. So, should we fix the fiery furnace story so that the guys die in the fire, but at least they were true to their God? It doesn't need an edit, or do we maybe need to see this story in a little bit of a different light? Okay, obviously, I'm not cool with editing the Bible, right? I'm really not going to edit any of these stories. Uh, I think there's a better way. I think there's a more um, theologically nuanced way to read these stories. I think there's a way to read these stories that gets closer to the way they were actually meant to be read than is purely these children's Bible stories of conquest. Fair enough? All right. I want you to notice what I think is the most theologically significant paragraph in this entire story. Uh, This starts in verse 16. Notice what it says. This is after the three youths have been pulled before King Nebuchadnezzar and they're standing there and they have been told, you will be executed if you do not bow down and worship this idol. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Okay, and then verse 18 is the one I like the best out of this whole story. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up for us. Right, here's the thing. I don't think that this is supposed to be a story about God saves the faithful. Just have faith in God and he will rescue you from all your troubles. Okay, I don't think that's the lesson. I think the story is about three guys who understood that God could save them. And maybe this time he will. Maybe this time he won't. But either way, the ending of the story doesn't matter. Maybe they get the rescue. Maybe they die like many of their countrymen did back when Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem to the ground and knocked down the walls and killed thousands of people who were praying to God for a rescue that they didn't get. But what matters is that we stay faithful to the only God who's true. I think that's the point of the story. All right, here's number two. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you only hear me say one thing this morning, this is my one point I'm actually trying to get across today. You hear one thing, hear this. Have faith that God can deliver you from anything and have faith when he doesn't. Because I want you to think for just a second about the first people who ever read the story of Daniel. Think about the first audience that this was written to. Because this was not written as a VBS skit. This was not written for children. And nobody thought it was cute the first time they read it. The first readers of this text were Israelites living at the end of the period of exile. This is written very late in the exile period. And Daniel as a whole is an extremely forward-looking book. Okay, we will talk more about the second half of the book of Daniel, which is the part that most of us don't know anything about. Okay, most of us have heard all the cute Bible stories from the first half, but don't know anything about the second half of the book, which is where most of the main theology comes in of this is why this book was written. It is an extremely forward-looking book telling these people who are getting ready to end their exile about how the future is going to play out for them. Okay, this is not a book of just some good examples from the past of faith. This instead is preparing God's people for their future after exile. Now, over the course of the few centuries leading up to the exile and the next few centuries following the exile, all of this right around that 5th century B.C., the people of God will experience both miraculous deliverance and crushing defeats. What Daniel sees, the message he gets from God, is that over the next several hundred years, there's going to be some really good times coming where God will deliver his people, and there's going to be some really bad times coming. Okay, That's the message of Daniel. So, if you as the people of God were getting ready to face some really good times and some really bad times, then what lesson do you need to hear about the God of Israel? You need to know that God can deliver you, but you also need to stick with God even in the times you can't see the deliverance anywhere. All right, on May 7th, 2005, my wife and I got married. Okay, we took vows that we would stay together for better or for worse. Okay, over the next 12 years, 
uh, we have faced some really hard times. We talked about some of this a little bit last week, right? When Luke was born, we faced some hard times for, for a lot of Luke's life. Uh, we faced some really hard church times. Uh, we've watched some of our closest friends' marriages fall apart. At one point, just a few years ago, I turned to Rachel and said, does anyone actually stay married? Because it seemed like everybody that was about our age that got married about the time we did was splitting up. Okay? In our marriage, we've also had struggles so personal, I can't tell you about them. Okay? Now, could God have intervened and sent an angel to swoop in and save us from any one of those problems? Absolutely. Okay? I often prayed for God to pull us out of the fire. I spent hours praying for God's deliverance from all of those things, and He just didn't. He could have, but He didn't. Okay, there was no angel. There was no, aha, the God of Israel is the only true God. No, we had some stuff that we lived through that we just had to suffer through. Okay, but on the other hand, there have been many times where God did work it out in ways I never could have imagined. Okay, there have been other times where we prayed for God to rescue us from something, and He did. Okay, we had some miracle surgeries with Luke. There were several times where the doctor said, that had to be a God thing because we can't explain it. And I said, yep, it was. Because I got a whole church of people praying for that thing, and it happened. Okay? There was another time we got a $90,000 hospital bill in the mail, and there was zero chance that I could have paid that off. Okay? And God just took care of it. Didn't have to pay. Okay, there have been a lot of times where we prayed for God to pull us out of the fire, and He did it. Okay, over the past 12 years of my marriage, we've had some better, and we've had some worse. Okay, now, I see several of you who are older than I am kind of nodding at me, uh, and you've been down this road further than I have, right? What's the next 12 years of my marriage going to look like, and the 12 after that? Am I going to get some better? Am I going to get some worse? Yep, and I don't know how long I've got left on this world, okay, but for the rest of my life, am I going to get some better? Okay, am I going to get some times where God comes in and saves me and does things in my life that can only be explained because God did it? Okay, am I also going to get some times where I pray fervently and fall, before my, and fall to my knees before my Creator and say, God, please come and save me from this, and He's just not? That's the way our God works. I think the lesson of the story of the fiery furnace is not that God is always, always going to give you the better and spare you the worse. I think the lesson is that God can save you from anything, but even if he doesn't, it is still always the right decision to go through it with God. All right, let's look at how this story ends. There's one more point I want to make before we go. Start in verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, which you got to love Nebuchadnezzar and his whole, I mean, he does everything with a gusto, right? If you're going to do it his way, that's great. And if not, you're going to die for it, right? He says, therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut to pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no God can save in this way. All right. Here's my point. And I think that this is something that we desperately need to grasp hold of. Okay? And that is that true faith will never be mainstream. Okay? 
True faith will never be mainstream. You think Jesus says this exact same point later. He talks about the road to destruction is nice and broad, right? The majority of people are going to be on which road? The road to destruction. It's broad. What about the path of discipleship? What does he say about that path? He says it's narrow, and the majority of people aren't going to walk that path because it's a harder path. Few people will find that path of walking as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us this is how it is going to be. If you and I are going to be in the same mold as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we are going to be true people of faith, then we better get used to the idea that that puts us in the minority. You know, I think one of the key points of this story is that Nebuchadnezzar never really gets it. Okay, he starts in the story by trying to create religious unity throughout his empire. And how do you do that if you've got this massive empire? How do you hold it all together? Well, if you can get everybody worshiping the same thing, you can create unity throughout your empire. He thinks the best way to do that, make the biggest statue that anybody's ever seen, make everybody worship that, this will all go great. Okay, this is a religious move. It is also a political move. Nebuchadnezzar is a smart man. Okay, he's not trying to stir up trouble. He doesn't want to kill his advisors. He's trying to create unity. And so when that plan doesn't work, he yet again tries to do religion by decree. Okay, now instead of death threats against anybody who doesn't worship his idol, we have death threats against anybody who criticizes the God of Israel. Okay, he has firsthand witnessed God's miraculous deliverance, and yet he still thinks that the best way to create faith is by issuing a command that I'll kill you if you don't. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar defines the mainstream of Babylonian culture, and by standing in that mainstream, he will always be on the outside of God's kingdom. Okay? So here's where I'm at this morning. If you're standing in the mainstream of culture, okay, if you don't view yourself as a resident alien, as a minority living on this world, as living in a kingdom that's not of this world, as not really fitting into the kingdoms of this world, if you don't see yourself as a minority, um, you're probably not doing the Jesus thing. Okay? You're probably not walking the narrow path. We need to be the people who are willing to stand up when everyone else is bowing down. We need to be the people who say, I don't really care what everybody else is doing. I'm going to choose to do what's right. We need to be the kind of people that say, I don't really care what it costs me. I'm going to keep following this God of Israel. If we're standing in the mainstream, if we're just going along with everything else that culture tells us is what's right, right? if we're doing what everybody else is doing, we're doing it wrong. Okay? True faith will never be mainstream. We are called to follow a suffering Savior. We are, follow, we are called to follow a man who showed us that true life can never be lived for yourself. It has to be lived by giving it away for others. All right, at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. And we would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that is going on in your life. If you have a need or a prayer request, anything that we can help you with, this song is the time for us as the church, to be here for you. And before we sing that song, I would like to speak a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.